Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. We left off last week on verse 10. Continue with verse 11. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Genesis and then Exodus, or page 45 in the Bibles provided for you. We're studying right through this great book of God's deliverance of His people from Egypt in order to preserve the line through which the Messiah would come. And we learned last week that God wrote this story in order to demonstrate the kind of Savior He was bringing to us. We looked at the, the comparison between Moses and, and Jesus Christ, and uh, not that Moses was great, but God wrote the story through Moses so that His people would be prepared for the kind of Messiah coming, and yet at the same time made clear that it wouldn't be Moses. It wasn't Moses. It couldn't be Moses. He's not only revealing the kind of Savior we will have, which is a very personal Savior, one who is crafted in His person in order to save us, we have a personal salvation, a personal salvation, one that is reaching us, a whole Christ for, a, for the whole person, for every part of our person. It is good news, and I want you to see it as we begin reading in verses 11 and following, 11 to the end of the chapter from Exodus chapter 2. <clears throat> One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked with this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Oh, Lord Jesus, would you send your spirit among us to open our eyes that we would see the gospel 
that our Father has written in this passage. The kind of salvation you are crafting even then that would be realized in Jesus Christ and applied to us. We pray that we would relish in it, that we would celebrate it, those of us who have a personal relationship with Christ now and are living in fellowship with Him. We also pray for those who do not know Christ in a personal way, that their hearts would be melted, that they would realize that in becoming weak, you can make them strong. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for His sake. And God's people said together, Amen. I have one child who has a particular aversion to showing any weakness. She will go unnamed, but she never wants to show any weakness. In fact, it was a trouble, it was a problem when she was younger when we would when she would get sick and we'd take her to the doctor. And I never really believed my wife when she told me that uh, we would take this particular daughter to the physician and uh, she would have a kind of resurrection. And uh, she was doing great. And she didn't know why her mother had brought her there. And uh, she just wanted the lollipop and she could go home. And it would frustrate my wife. And so I said, well, I'll take her. I've got to see this for myself. I took her in this one occasion. She had 104 temperature. She was literally, she was just... Um, uh, withering in my uh, limp in my arms, I carried her into the doctor. I lay her down on the laid her down on the on the exam table, and uh, she could barely open her eyes. But when the doctor walked in, there was a resurrection. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Missing school. Wish I could be back at school. I couldn't believe it. Right before my very eyes was this resurrection. We had to write down her symptoms that she had told us before, and we had to write them down because we would have to tell the doctor how she really was. She still so has such an aversion to admitting her weakness. Now when she goes to the doctor and he forces her to tell uh, him what is going on, she starts crying, and they think it's because she's in such great pain. In fact, last year she went to the school uh, nurse with a little scratchy throat, And when the nurse asked her what was wrong with her, she melted into such tears, into such convulsive crying, they tried to send her to the psychiatrist on campus. And she said, no, it's just I just don't like to tell anybody what's wrong with me. It is a problem, isn't it, following Jesus, receiving salvation? Because Jesus said, I came for the sick. I didn't come for the well. I came for those who could not pay and can never pay and can never make any contribution. I came for those I'm ultimately going to make like children. As Tim Keller is fond of saying, here is the only qualification for salvation. Here is what will qualify you to be helped by Jesus All you need is need. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. 
All you need to qualify for salvation, to qualify for the help that Jesus provides continually, not just initially when you come to Christ, but the help He provides continually is nothing. All you need is nothing. So, what is there to do? Well, our text teaches us that you must acknowledge the truth. You must acknowledge your need. And when you've acknowledged your need, you must receive His grace, His supply. And when you've received His supply, you must respond with gratitude. That's the gospel. That's that same message. Remember that I said I'm going to preach every week. Grace, uh, guilt and grace and gratitude, need, supply, response. That's the message of the gospel. It is, first of all, acknowledging your need. Acknowledging your need. The story of this passage, the story, the drama of this passage occurs in the verbs. And the first verb that arrests us is this one in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Now, why is that significant? Because the king of Egypt had claimed to be God. The king of Egypt strutted around... Egypt as the Pharaoh strutted around his country and around his, his portion of the world saying, you should worship me because I am divine. The final proof of his lack of divinity was that he died. He died like every Pharaoh who had died before him and died as every Pharaoh after him would die as well as anyone else who claimed to be divine. The proof, the ultimate proof of your weakness, of your need for a Savior, a total Savior is you and I are going to die. You know, there have been a number of people who have told me through the years that they are without sin or they're without need for a Savior anyway. They're good enough to get into heaven. But you know what proves them wrong every time? They die. They die. And the Bible tells us, Romans 5, that all die because all sin. The proof that you have sinned is that you die. And it doesn't matter how strong you feel right now. It doesn't matter how confident you are in your worldview or your alternative way of salvation. Death will prove that yours does not work. Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist, evangelist, who started out pastoring in St. Louis and then went over to, to Europe and to Switzerland to start the Labrie Fellowship as a place to, to convince young people who were searching for meaning in life in the, uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He, they would come to Labrie, the shelter, and they would test out their worldviews with this brilliant man. And sometimes when Dr. Schaefer couldn't make any progress in convincing someone that his or her worldview wouldn't work, their religion wouldn't work, their, their confidence in self wouldn't work, he, he resorted to this. He would say, oh, what are you going to do when you leave Labrie? They might say something like, well, I'm going to hike to Italy. Then what? Well, then I'm going to, um, then I'm, I'm going to uh, hike to France. And then what? Well, then I'm going to go back to the United States. And then what? I'm going to 
get a college degree. And then what? I'll get a job. Well, then what? I'll, I'll get married and I'll have children. Then what? Well, I'll work my career and then I'll retire. Then what? Well, I'll enjoy my grandchildren. Then what? I suppose I'll eventually get sick. And then what? Well, I'll die. Then what? Is your worldview, your self-salvation sufficient for that then what? That's the true test. The strength of a salvific religion, a, a religion, a faith that can save you beyond then what? And that is only Christ who has gone through that death, who has been raised to life that he might raise you as well. You have to acknowledge your need for the then what. But some of you, most of you, are Christians and you say, yes, I understand that. I'm so glad I've understood that at one point. I'm glad that's, I can check that box. I understand. I'm okay for the then what. The problem is now. Because we easily get the idea that once we have been justified, we are justified by grace and then we're sanctified by sweat. We, we, we come to that point of acknowledging our need for salvation, for eternal life, but then we default to our self-salvation again and say, well, now I can take it from here. I can battle sin. I can battle depression. I can battle my life situations. I can make my way through this life. And so God has to continue his work of weakening us too, of forcing us to acknowledge our need, not just for initial salvation, but for total salvation. Our theological documents use the word salvation just in the same way the Bible does, not to, de not to describe initial conversion, but salvation is taking you out of the realm of darkness into eternal light, beginning with your conversion, proceeding through life, and continuing into all of eternity. And for that salvation, you must acknowledge your need totally, continually. You are never without total need for salvation by grace. Moses had to learn it as much as Pharaoh did. Pharaoh didn't learn it until judgment. Moses, by God's mercy, had to learn his total dependence on God constantly. He had to learn it in being, by being thrown out of Egypt. The verb describing his fearing and fleeing, the verb describing his fleeing is the same verb used to describe the way God is going to rescue his people from Israel. It's the exodus. Moses had to be exodused out of Egypt. Egypt had to be exodused out of Moses. What do I mean by that? You see what Moses did by default? Moses was being called, Moses was being prepared from his earliest days to be God's agent of redemption, not the Redeemer. 
But Moses confused that at one point when he began to understand his identity viscerally as an Israelite, and he sees an Egyptian uh, mistreating an Israelite, and with his anger, his protective nurture, he rose up to defend his brother and killed the Egyptian. Now, we might say it was an act of, it was a mercy, it was, a, it was an intervention, it was an act of defense. But God demonstrated in this act that Moses had to realize that he could not redeem He could not shepherd these people. He could not lead them out of their captivity by his own machinations, by his own resourcefulness. He could not do it by killing just one Egyptian at a time. He had to be broken and to be made weak enough for God to use him to lead his people out. Moses had a hot temper. Moses had a had this idea that he could accomplish God's will by his strength, by his resourcefulness. I told you several months ago that eventually all the skeletons would come out of my closet. Well, here's a new one that I've never been able to tell before. And I'll tell this one now that my mother has gone on and passed on to heaven. I can tell this story about how God had to drive this Egypt out of me too. I do it to encourage some of you who struggle with the same things. I became a Christian by a friend of mine in high school leading me to Christ. He was a classmate. He led me to Christ. And uh, I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know anything about Christianity. So he was my walking Bible. He was my guide. And so I did whatever he did. I imitated him. He was a, he was a, he was a faithful guide. He was so faithful and, and so uh, such a, a, a representative of Christ. He was threatening to unbelievers, the unbelievers in our Christian school. And so they were always persecuting, taunting him, trying to, trying to find a chink in his testimony. I came in the locker room one day before basketball practice and I found the biggest bully on our team throwing my friend around the locker room pushing him into one locker after another, trying to taunt him into a fight. If he could just get him to throw one punch, then he could could wail on him. My friend just kept laughing. And he didn't throw a punch. He said, you know, you're funny when you're so angry. And you'd throw him into the locker again. I didn't know the Bible, but I knew the law of Alabama. The unofficial law of Alabama, and that is when your buddy is getting beaten up, it doesn't matter. You don't ask, first of all, do you deserve to be, get, uh, be beaten up? In that case, I'll intervene. You just see your buddy beaten up, and you intervene. You ask questions later. So I reverted to the natural law of Alabama. I kicked a bar off a chair, and I took it, and I was going to hit the other guy in the head. Well, you say that wouldn't have been too bad. But you have to understand that this kid had had a major accident before, cracked his skull. He had to wear a helmet in, in practice and in basketball, but he wasn't wearing that helmet then. And I was aiming for the crack in his skull. 
Well, it did work to stop him from beating up my friend when he saw the bar coming at him. He stopped. But at the same time, my friend said, George, stop. Well, it offended me at first. I thought, well, what, what kind of appreciation is that? I try to take up for you and you tell me to stop. And later he said, that's not the way we do things. We don't become like them. He would go on to tell me that on and on, still does. He, he told me in the rest of high school, George, that's not the way we do things. We pray for people. He told me in college, that's not the way we, that's not the way we, we engage in, in controversy. We try to understand and we apply the gospel. He told me that in seminary, we don't try to destroy the other person's argument with power. We listen with grace. That's not the way we deal with people in a denomination we don't agree with. We don't deal with cleverness. We deal with prayer and humility and and we organize for service. We are aggressive in evangelism. We cry out in prayer. But George, we don't take things in our own hands like that. The kingdom of God is not advanced by our power. It's not advanced by our cleverness. It's not advanced by our vengeance, our vindictiveness. The kingdom of God is advanced in ways that display the power of God. And the only way the power of God is demonstrated is when we are weak so that he accomplishes his will in weak vessels like us and people are forced to say, that Savior must be something because our pastor really isn't. That Jesus must be something because my neighbor is so weak. My friend who struggles with, the, with, the, with emotional fragility, then, my goodness, their Savior must be strong. Moses has to be delivered like Pharaoh has to be delivered. Unbelievers need to be delivered by the Savior as you, Christian, must constantly be delivered from the delusion of self-salvation. So what do you do? What do you do when you acknowledge your need? You receive God's supply. You receive his supply in Jesus. Look at these wonderful words at the end of in verses uh, 20, um, 23 and 24. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Remember I said the, the story is told, the good news is found in the verbs? All Pharaoh could do is die. All the children of Israel could do is cry. But God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. What do you need to know as one who acknowledges his or her, her total helplessness? You need to know that God 
God can be trusted. And Christ's salvation can be trusted now and into eternity. You need intellectual assurance for that. And so that's given here. You may be assured that Christ is going to save you totally, not just initially, through life and into eternity. You need to know intellectually He can be trusted for your salvation. Why? Because He remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't need to turn there unless you're a fast flipper, but Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 explains that, interprets that, uh, what he meant by that, by that remembering the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring But notice he says, it does not say unto offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. It says instead, to your offspring who is Christ. When God made the promise to Abraham, I will remember my promise made to your offspring. He used the singular because he was referring to Christ. He wasn't saying to Abraham, I will remember you, Abraham, because you are so great, because you are so consistent, because you will keep my promises, because you will walk in the narrow way, I will remember to bless you with the salvation I've promised and bring a redeemer to the world. Well, if that were the condition, then we would be hopeless because Abraham was not consistent. Abraham... Abraham's faith fluctuated. Abraham lied about his wife. Abraham was not a man of stellar faith. God did not base his promise on Abraham and his seeds. He based his promise and he bases his promise to you on Christ. When you are despairing of whether or not God is going to take care of you, whether he's going to deliver you from your from your spiritual oppressors, your political oppressors, your economic oppressors, your social oppressors, whatever it is that is oppressing you, when you're worried about that, don't say, Lord, can't you save a good guy? Can't you remember a good gal? You say, Lord, you made a promise to Jesus that you would never drop me. You made a promise to Jesus that you would never fail me. Please, Lord, love your son. Be faithful to your son. That's all you need because it promises when you come to Christ, your life is joined to Christ. God can no more unlove you. He can no more fail you in your redemption than he can fail to love his son or fail to redeem his son. You need intellectual assurance. You also need emotional assurance. See this last word in verse 25? God knew. God knew. You may have another translation that says God was concerned. But it's just that bare word, God knew. And, and that word is used in various ways throughout uh, the Bible, and it, and it refers to different things. You have to interpret it by the context. Sometimes it means predestination, election. God, those whom He foreknew, 
He also called those whom he called. He justified those he justified. He glorified. He says to Abraham, I have known you so that you would pass your faith on to your children. I knew you before you were born. I have chosen you. Sometimes it means that. Sometimes it, it means intimacy, deep and intimate love. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Sometimes it, it means uh, identification with pain, empathy. What does it mean here? Yes, it means all of those things. God knew. God heard their cry because he knew them. He had known them from before the foundation of the world. He had chosen them to be his. Makes that clear in Deuteronomy 7. He knows them intimately so that he, he can hear their cries. He knows when a hair falls from your head. He knows when a sparrow falls. He has intimate knowledge of every detail of your life because, as Kevin showed us earlier, He is with us. By His Spirit, He is inside us, constantly monitoring all of our vital signs as children of God. He is also one who shares our pain. You say it's not fair that God waited 430 years to liberate these people. What kind of God would let them endure that kind of pain for that long? A God who has never been without pain from all of eternity. We know that He has eternally been with pain because we're told that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. God has always known the pain of losing a child, an unspeakable pain. And the God whose children endured for 430 years in Egypt was the one who had endured eternally longer than that, the pain of their redemption and of our redemption too. In other words, you can never go to Christ thinking, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm feeling. You don't understand what I'm going through. Oh, yes, he's understood it. His father has understood it from all eternity. So you receive what he offers to you, the intellectual assurance that he cannot forget his commitment to his son, and you must receive that emotional assurance that you have a high priest who is touched constantly by the feeling of your infirmities. And then when you understand, as you understand that good news, then you imitate it. Keep asking for it for one. That's another important verb, groaning. They cried out to him. And crying out is, is not, to, we, we groan not because we have to, we have to manipulate God we have to twist his arm to listen to us. Groaning draws us to his knee where he wants us to be and where we are best. As in Deuteronomy 8 when he said, I made you hungry so that I could feed you. I made you hungry so that I could teach you. I made you hungry so that I could enable you to obey the command that precedes every command. It is not by bread alone that you will live, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, 
The very first command is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved not just once but into all of eternity. Groan to him. Cry out to him. Not because that's the only way to get his attention but because that father wants you at his knee. And your best place is nearest to him. And then as you experience that, when you experience him responding to your groaning, you'll only fall more in love with him. And as you fall in love with him, you want others to fall in love with him too. This scene that we have of Moses meeting uh, the daughters of Ruel at the, at the well is to conjure up wedding imagery. When people meet at wells in the in the Bible, it's, it's usually something to do with marriage. And so here are these seven preachers' kids. He's a bivocational, a bivocational preacher, and he sends his daughters to get water for his, his, uh, their flocks. And these shepherds run them away, but Moses, protector as he is, stands up defends them, gets them back to the well. He doesn't kill any of the other shepherds. He's made that much progress. He gets the women back to the well. He enables them to feed, to water their flocks and then sends them on their way. In other words, he intervenes for them and then stays with them. The way we imitate the gospel in our evangelism and discipleship this, this is it. We intervene in someone's life. We get near them. And we stay with them. And we become matchmakers. We want to matchmake them to Christ as the bridegroom. We want them to, that's what we want in evangelism. We want them to be wedded to Christ. And our discipleship is not just data transfer. Our discipleship is staying with them so that they are more and more wedded to Christ, that their marriage to Christ is enhanced and encouraged. That's evangelism and discipleship. Moses, God had intervened in Moses' life. Moses reciprocates by showing that kind of mercy to others and in so doing provides a picture of Christ and his followers. So where are you now? You're still thinking that you have to become more qualified for Christ to be your whole salvation? You still think that there's some improvements that need to be made in your life, that you should be stronger by now as long as you've been walking with Christ? You really think that's why he chose you? You really think that's why he stays near to you? Because, man, you're so valuable to his team. I have a friend who's a pastor of a very large church in South Florida. He tells this story himself as often as he can so that he can brag on Jesus as well as those who introduced him to Jesus. He and his sister grew up in a, in a very disrupted home and he saw a lot of abuse. He saw his mother go from one husband and boyfriend to another and 
eventually witnessed his mother being killed. He and his sister were put into foster care, the foster care system, and they were abused there too, went from one foster home to another to another. He got into his teenage years and he was afraid he was going to age out of the system. Who wants a teenage kid? Who will adopt a teenage kid? One day the Petersons showed up at the adoption agency and they said, you know, we're, we're an older couple, so we need older kids. Do you have any teenagers? One page, two pictures. Yeah. But don't make any rash decisions, the adoption agency said. Why don't you spend some time with them? Spend a few days with them. Get to know uh, Bobby and his sister. Okay, so... They came to Bobby and they told him, there's uh, the Petersons here, they want to take you out and get to know you a little bit. Oh my goodness, this was something he'd only dreamed, dreamed of for years. He had to make this right. He had to make this work. And so he said they, they first uh, took him out to bowling, took him out to bowl. He thought, if I can just, if I can just throw strikes, well, they'll want me. They'll adopt me. Nine gutter balls in a row. Then they took him out for Chinese food afterwards. If I can just eat with chopsticks, they'll want me in their family. See my skill with chopsticks. He plunges his chopsticks into the chow mein and pushes the whole dish into Mr. Peterson's lap. He put his head on the table and cried. Went back, cried all the way back. Why are you, why are you crying, Bobby? We had a great time. Because I just, you won't have me as your child now. I bowled those gutter balls and pushed all that food into your lap. Mr. and Mrs. Peterson laughed. You really think we wanted to choose somebody who could eat well at the table or was an excellent bowler? We chose to love you. We decided. We decided before you bowled and before you ate that you were going to be a Peterson. And Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit chose you from the foundation of the world in love before you could do anything, before you could demonstrate your weakness and your failures. They set the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit set their love on you. And once it's set, they'll never withdraw it. Your response, my response, is to become a child that really says with abandonment, I am nothing. You are my everything. Take me in your arms for eternity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your endurance with us. We thank you for 
completing what you say is necessary to inherit the kingdom of God. We must become as children, and so you daily weaken us and eventually weaken us to the point of death when we are finally qualified to receive in utter helplessness the kingdom of God. Get a name for yourself by demonstrating the power and the wealth of your grace through us. In Jesus' name we pray it, God's people said. Amen.